I think that's why I extend that empathy towards my abuser on fresh off the boat. The guy who raped me and stuff like that. Not because I'm excusing them, not because I'm defending them, but because I think it's a practice that I am modeling that I hope everybody does. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Today, our guest is Golden Globe-nominated actor Constance Wu. And for people listening, as a trigger warning, we are going to be talking about sexual assault in this episode. From Crazy Rich Asians to her roles in Hustlers and Fresh Off the Boat, Constance has starred in a variety of films and TV shows. Aside from her acting career, Constance is also a writer. Her new memoir, Making a Scene, focuses on memories from childhood, experiencing heartbreak, and how she, quote, made it in Hollywood. Constance, welcome to 9 to 5-ish. We like to start with a lightning round of questions to warm our guests up. So it's going to be quick questions, quick answers. Are you ready? Here we go. I'm ready. What was the first job you got paid for? I was a bread baker at Montana Gold Bread Company in Richmond, Virginia. Let's talk about bread. Do you still bake bread? No. Okay. What kind of bread is your favorite bread? Sourdough, probably. Okay, good good choice. What is the last photo that you took? It's definitely of my daughter. That's all my photos. How old's your daughter? She's two. So cute. Are you an inbox zero person? I'm an inbox single digits number. I think that's very impressive as somebody who's like inbox 300,000. So I'm like, good for you. Well, I mean, I archive everything. So I have. Yeah, but like, it's the yeah. fancy way to hide it. It's, it's, the, it's yeah. the digital equivalent of throwing it in the closet and never looking back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what is the most used app on your phone? Most used app on my phone? It's probably my email or my calendar. Does that make me a nerd? Yeah, maybe. No, I'm the same. Go-to karaoke song. I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. Do you have a good voice? Um, I've been told I have a pretty good voice, yeah. Would you like to sing for us? Um, not right now, no. <laughs> but <laughs> my next movie is a musical. I sing and dance Wait, in my really? next movie. Yeah, oh, it's a musical. I'm very excited. Okay. If you could have a dinner party and invite your plus one, could be somebody living or dead, who would you invite? I was going to say Philip Seymour Hoffman because he's my favorite actor, but I think I want somebody a little more funny. So I think I would go with Robin Williams. Oh, that's a good one. I'd like to go to that dinner party. Okay. Of all the roles that you've played, what character do you feel like you are most similar to? I played a character named Kathy on a web series called Eastsiders with my friend Kit Williamson. And that role was actually written for me. Therefore, it is most reflective of me. So it's definitely Kathy on Eastsiders. Okay. We are going to jump into to the rest of the convo, but you did a very okay. good job in the lightning round. Thank you. So I want to go way back to you as a child, little Constance. What, like, just what was your vibe? What were you like? How would your parents have described you? My parents would have described me as very bold and extroverted and emotional and loud. So I'm going to guess that finding theater was a very healthy thing for you. Oh, yes. I think it was a relief for the whole family when I found an outlet for all of that 
jazz hand energy, you know? So, you know, you have said before that Richmond is the city that built you. What do you mean by that? I really felt embraced by the people of Richmond, Virginia growing up, which I feel like you're more used to hearing Asian American stories of feeling like left out or mocked or something like that. And like, while that might make for a better story, if I said that, it's not true. I think um, I had I had pretty close to what I would think is an idyllic community growing up, even though it was primarily white. I was never made to feel different for that. You know, even though it has slightly more conservative values than I carry now, there's just like a kindness to Richmonders that it doesn't really matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. You're a person. I mean, I feel really grateful to have been raised in Richmond. So you've talked about making a choice early on in your career, and I thought this was a really interesting way that you thought about what could have been a, and, and probably was a big fork in your road. You said you asked yourself, would I be OK with waitressing until I'm 40 or 50 if it meant you could keep acting? And you decided yes. Can you tell us how you came to that decision and, and also, what prompted you to start asking yourself that question? I was in a really low point in my life where I was in a lot of debt, didn't think I was going to be able to make my rent that month. And I think I was 30. So, you know, that's a pivotal time in anyone's life. You're like, you start reflecting on things when you're 30. I had just gone through a breakup and, you know, I was feeling bad about myself because I was 30 and here I was waiting tables and doing the same thing I'd been doing for 10 years auditioning and getting rejected. And what made me really, really actually reflect was I read this book by Brene Brown, where she says, you know, you're worthy now, not when you get this job, not when you lose 10 pounds, but now as is. And so I asked myself, as is, as I am right now, do I feel good about that? Do I feel worthy? And when I really thought about it, I was like, why do so many actors judge and shun waiting tables. There is no shame in the service industry. And I think it's actually really harmful to people who choose that industry to act like that is beneath you. I truly do. Every occupation has dignity in it. And I think we're just so focused on, Americans particularly are so focused on your job, like it's supposed to bring you happiness. And I I just don't buy that happiness. It's as is, as now, not when you get a job. It's the process of, 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 of your life. And so I think what I decided was that my job should not reflect what makes me happy, but what gives my life meaning and purpose. And I was able to realize that, yeah, I love theater enough and I'm not going to judge waitressing jobs. And so I was able to check myself and my own judgment of the service industry and society's judgment of it. And recognize that, no, this is who I am. I am a person who has a job that works to support myself in terms of rent and food in order to pursue a life of meaning for myself that might not always result in a huge bank account, but is meaningful. And the second I, it was so crazy. The second I made that decision, it changed all my auditions because I stopped going into my auditions seeking results with that anxiety of trying to get the job and was like, oh no, my job isn't to get the job. My job is to go into the room in this audition and fully realize the character. That's it. It's the same thing as if I'm going to acting class or I'm in conservatory. Same thing. And the second I did that, the second I stopped having that expectation and that need to get the job and that desire, 
my work was better, you know? And then I started booking roles. But you can't pretend. You have to genuinely believe that you are okay being a waitress for the rest of your life, genuinely in your heart of hearts. I, I tried faking it for many years, but once it became a true belief when I was 30, that's when everything changed. There are two things that you you said in there that I, I want to zone in on. The first is this theme I feel like has been coming up so much in, in a lot of the podcasts and books that I've been reading, which is when you start to detach from the outcome, things open up. And listening to you say that, it sounds like that's what happened. It is. It, it's just so interesting because I feel like that is impossibly hard to do or to tell someone to do. So was it really kind of this aha switch or is it something that now that you're in this position where you have had professional success in the area that also gives you passion, you're able to look back and say that was the moment and everything changed? No, I knew that was the moment back when it happened. And that was before I had professional success. And I think it is hard to tell somebody to do that. And I actually think it's almost impossible because it's not something that you can get to externally. Somebody saying, you know, go take the garbage out. That's something you can do externally, but Mm -hmm. don't care about the result. You can't tell somebody to not care. You care or you don't care. Like this is, that's just how you feel. You could pretend that you don't care, but if you do, you do. One of the things that I read about you that I'm like curious if it's still true is that even after you like, you know, quote unquote made it, you still participate in acting classes with other upcoming actors. Yeah. Tell and I love that. Like just, I'm fascinated. Just t- tell me why. I mean, it's been less been so like. now. Well, it's less so now that I have a kid cuz a kid just takes up all your f-ing time. Oh, sorry. Can I say f- on this podcast? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> we say it all the time. It's fine. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I didn't have a I just I had a kid 2 years ago and I was successful I way before that in terms of visibility and finances. Whenever I could, I'd go to acting class because I'm I was never going to acting class because oh I want to get a better be a better actor so that I could get a job. I was going to acting class because I enjoyed it. The way people are like, I'm gonna go to a bar because I enjoy it. I just want to hang out with my friends. And I I don't know, it's a nerd in me, but it's like being with these other kids in this acting class. I mean a lot of them are my age too, who are in the same position I was like 10 years ago. I love that. I love that in that room in that studio. Nobody's better than anybody else. We're all just trying to fully realize our characters and find ways to like deepen our craft. I love that. It's like my favorite thing to do in the world, truly. So yeah, I do still go. It's like, it's like going out clubbing for me. It's my form of fun. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I think that we would be totally remiss in, in talking to you if we didn't talk about the kind of moniker you've you've gotten about being honest and you've described yourself in terms of being imperfect and in Hollywood as in a lot of media all over appearing to be those two things honest and imperfect which are both very very human can sometimes come at a cost so can you talk about your experience in being too real and how that impacted your career well, yes, I, I am very honest and real and imperfect, but I don't think that that's unusual. Like you said, it's very human. I think actually everybody is, but who shows it? I think I show it not always in the best ways, 
but I think I sort of just can't help myself. Just like I was, you know, the jazz hand kid, even though it's not cool to be the kid who harmonizes on the bus. I was that kid and I couldn't help it. I just had to harmonize on the bus. But yeah, I mean, I've definitely had foot and mouth moments. The biggest thing I'm probably known for right now isn't even Crazy Rich Asians. It's probably for my tweets where I had like a moment of heat where I felt like I was in a bar and I was like complaining to my friends like, oh my God, I'm like fucking crying right now. I can't believe my show is renewed. I can't do this other stuff. And my friends know that there is a background behind that. They know that I was sexually harassed and intimidated and threatened for my first two years of Fresh Off the Boat. They know that I had to swallow that pain because I was trying to preserve the reputation of the show for so long because it was the only show we had for Asian American representation. Did I want to stain that by saying my Asian American producer was misogynist, sexist, selectively to Asian women, that he tried to, you know, that he touched my crotch, like that he did all these kind of things? No, because then the show would have been like, it probably would have shut down and people would have lost their jobs way sooner. But as a result, that pain doesn't just go somewhere because you will it away. It inevitably is going to come out somewhere else. And I thought, you know what? I handled it. That was just the first couple seasons of the show that that happened. And then after the first couple seasons, I actually completely stopped talking to that producer. I finally started saying no, which was hard to do the first couple of years because I was new to TV. I was new to Hollywood, all of these things. And so I was scared of saying no, but I could do that now that the show was a success. So I was like, you know what? I handled it. Nobody has to ever know that that happened to me. Mind you, this is pre Me Too movement, pre Harvey Weinstein, all that. When the network told me, we're probably not going to renew your show. You're welcome to pursue other jobs. When I found out it was renewed, I felt a little bit betrayed, not only by what they had promised me, but also the fact that I had swallowed something in for so long, abuse for so long in order to preserve it. And, and then this is what happens. And I, I was reckless. And I said some things that were even worse than imperfect, that were ungrateful, that would be perceived as bratty, especially in the context of the fact that I just had a hit movie crazy rich Asians. So suddenly it's like, oh, you think you're all that because you have a hit movie when it really had nothing to do with that. Um, and my relationship with those tweets has changed a lot in the past few years because I've gone through a lot of therapy. I mean, as you probably know, those tweets and some of the DMs I got afterwards resulted in me trying to take my own life. And so I had to do a lot of personal work after that. And my relationship with those tweets, instead of looking at them with shame and regret, I've tried to look at them as sort of, like you said, I have flaws and imperfections and moments of gracelessness like everybody else, and I can forgive myself for them. And by showing them, I hope that people know that it's okay for them to make mistakes too, and it's okay to forgive people for their mistakes, and it's okay to keep changing. So that's my relationship with it now. I'm like just taking like a big breath in and breath out because one, like I'm so sorry that you went through all of this. And I think what we have also all seen the mental toll that social media can take and what it can do to even the strongest of individuals. And what you went through is there's no excuse. It's it's horrific and we appreciate you sharing the story on here. I'm curious, like how you 
have been able to find sort of self-protection in coexisting as like still a public person who still needs media to promote a new book and to promote new projects while also like protecting your mental health and never putting yourself in a position where you got to such a, a scary place and a dangerous place. Like, how are you taking care of yourself? I guess is my better question. Well, you know, I did take a long break from social media and from being a public person. And it is a choice that I've made my mental health over my career. I've turned down magazine covers because I just don't want that visibility. And just I've tried to just limit my public exposure, which has an effect on what jobs I get, because people look at those kind of things when you're a a TV film actress unfortunately. And I didn't even want to return to social media. I had actually planned not to. And my publisher kind of really was pushing for me to rejoin for my book. And I was very resistant for a really long time. And I talked about it with my therapist. And that's sort of what what made me make the decision that, yeah, three years ago for me to rejoin social media in order to talk about these experiences. I wasn't ready. I was too raw, too wounded still. But I do feel that now I have, through that experience of almost losing my life, I I have created tools that I can use to help me out of those situations. And even though I was scared of rejoining social media, I realized that the possibility of me helping somebody who was like in my situation that I was three years ago meant more to me than like, than I was afraid of it. And since I now have the tools, the best thing to do is to try to help people. And it actually wasn't to promote my book, honestly, because I, I actually believe a lot, not a lot of people read books these days. And I think our, the people our I want to- do, don't worry. <laughs> oh, that's good. But, but the people I want to reach for this message of like, it's okay to ask for help. And you are not alone when you're feeling in these very dark, despairing places are the people who aren't necessarily out there reading self-help books and introspective books. They're the people who are mindlessly scrolling social media and feel poorly. I want to help people going through that, even if they don't buy my book. And what's the way to reach somebody who might be going through that? It's probably through a social media feed. So that's why my public statement that I made when I returned to social media was very very deliberate and thoughtful and not about the book, but really about the experience and about letting people know that um, these are conversations that need to be had. And that if you're going through this, you're not alone. It was truly just about helping people. There's so much, you know, I struggle to use the word good, but I guess connection coming from social media, both, you know, sometimes it can be positive. Sometimes it definitely can be harmful and very negative. From this situation, both the comments that you got, putting something out there that you felt in a very kind of impulsive and quick way, and then now coming back to help people, what do you think about the role of social media going forward? Yeah, it's basically like you don't exist anymore if you're not Mm -hmm. on social media. As for myself and my career, I don't know. I'm still working that out. I don't think... I want to continue promoting myself as an actress on social media. And that is going to mean that I will probably lose out on opportunities and roles. And um, 
I'm currently in my state of mind is to think of that not as losing out, but as a helpful filtering mechanism. I'm trying to think of it as if somebody is going to hire me based on my social media numbers, and then somebody else will only hire me based on wanting to work with my abilities or my heart or my talent or whatever, I guess those are probably the people I want to work with. It's a mindset that I'm choosing to adopt because it's sort of better for me and my mental health. So I was going to say also over the last three years, we've had a pandemic. We've spent a lot of time (laughs) not going out, kind of sitting with ourselves. I think we've all had some moment of reflection. Did it feel like writing was a form of catharsis to put this experience into something physical that kind of came out of you? Or did it feel like it was an experience that you needed to get out and get away from? The experience of writing, it was definitely cathartic. But the process of going back and figuring out the beginning, middle, and ends of each of the essays was very different. And I always compare it to a scar or a wound. So when you have a physical trauma to your body, you have a physical wound to show for it. You have a cut or a bruise or something. So you could say, oh, this is witness that this thing happened to me. I am literally bleeding. And with emotional trauma, you don't have that. So even if you work it out and talk therapy for years, which I have, there was something about the process of putting it in words on a page that felt to me like it made it real in the way that a wound makes a physical trauma real. And because of that, because I could finally actually see the wound, in some cases, it finally started to heal. And I finally started to understand it, which was baffling to me because there's one story I write in there about an eighth grade teacher, which has been traumatic to me in my whole life. So traumatic that I like called her when I was in college and was like in the middle of therapy. and was like, how dare you do this to me? (laughs) And I was never able to work it through to like, how it also shaped me in like a beautiful way. And basically what happened was the teacher accused me of plagiarism. She had no proof. So she took me to all my other teachers and said, is Constance good enough to have written this? And all the teachers said no. So I had to watch every single one of my teachers, still makes me cry, say, no, you're not good enough. I don't believe you, even though there's no proof. And the only teacher who was like, of course she wrote it. Of course she's good enough was my drama teacher. And look at the career I pursued. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. that's such an obvious thing, but I didn't realize it. I didn't have such gratitude for my drama teacher, Mr. Frizzell, until I put the words on paper. And I should have recognized that a long time ago. Thank you, Mr. Frizzell. Let's give you a shout out. He's he's since passed away, I I discovered. And if I had thought of this, like, years ago, I could have looked him up and called him to be like, thank you. But it took me that long to to think about that because I was so attached to the pain of the other teacher who hurt me. Constance, when I, when I hear you talk, I'm like reflecting on how I know you as like an actor in a lot of shows and movies that I adore. And then, you know, saw what happened with the tweet storm a few years ago and, and then saw your, your kind of comeback on social when you sort of revealed what you had been through. I've since been reading your book and, and obviously share, hearing this convo today. And what I'm reflecting on is how you really have no idea what somebody is going through. And we are all so quick to like jump on assumptions, just sort of associating people with certain things, or all of us have participated in cancel culture in some way. And so as you think about 
what maybe assumptions like maybe you have made about others or now that you sort of have been a, a victim in, in kind of cancel culture at one point and are now reintroducing what actually was happening. How do you just think about all of that? Like where we are in a society and especially like what we've all kind of been doing to many women in particular. I try to do just what you just said. Rather than go to a place of judgment, I try to go to a place of curiosity, which doesn't mean that you approve of somebody's behavior. That's, I think, the biggest trap. Like, for example, I mean, everybody likes to talk about the slap, Will Smith. You can have curiosity about circumstances that might have surrounded such a large action without meaning that you approve of his actions. It's just where you choose to put your attention. Choosing to grow your empathy and awareness of people rather than choosing to place judgment, I think is a good exercise for us all. And the actress, it was an Asian actress, a former colleague of mine who was the one who actually tried to convince me to kill myself, essentially. And I'm trying to extend my empathy even to her. I forgive her because if I'm asking people to engage in a little curiosity and empathy over my experience, I need to do that to other people too, including the person who tried to get me to kill myself. I don't know what she was going through at the time. You know, what some people do is not a reflection of you. It's a reflection of their own insecurities and their own issues. So I try to do that in my book to all the characters. I mean, you see that with, you know, my abuser on Fresh Off the Boat, the producer who sexually harassed me and intimidated me. At the end, I try to actually put myself in his shoes and understand what it might feel like to be an Asian American man where the culture you grew up in has constantly emasculated you and made you feel powerless. Where is the one place you can exercise your power? It's not me excusing it. It's not me forgiving it. It's just me understanding it. And then I don't blame myself as much. I have an essay in the book where I talk about being raped. I take a couple paragraphs to consider my rapist's perspective not because I'm defending him, but because if I'm going to ask him to consider my perspective, I feel like I, I feel, in fact, I feel like we need to do this a lot with accused men because so often their bafflement, they're like, I thought it was consensual. It's genuine bafflement. They really thought it was consensual. Whereas the woman's account is often filled with like shame or guilt and all these feelings. Um, why didn't I fight back harder? I didn't fight back because I didn't want to make a scene. That's why my book is called Making a Scene. Um, but I did say to my rapist, I am not ready for sex. I said it in plain language that he heard. And he did it anyway. And he did it in the most gentle, loving way. If I'd started fighting back, maybe he would have stopped being gentle. So I was protecting myself, right? But I also ghosted him after that. And he was really hurt when he finally was able to contact me. And then I had to officially dump him rather than ghost him. He was furious. He was so hurt. And so I'm like, in his mind, he didn't rape me. I'm the bitch who ghosted him. Of course, this isn't the truth, but I think we need to ask accused men to consider the possibility that their version of events isn't the only version of events. And I think that's why I extend that empathy towards my abuser on Fresh Off the Boat the guy who raped me and stuff like that, not because I'm excusing them, not because I'm defending them, but because I think it's a practice that I am modeling that I hope everybody does. My mouth is honestly like hanging off of my I was face. just looking at us. Both I feel, of us have our hands above our yeah. mouth. Like, I don't even know what to say right now. 
I just, I'm not going to say anything because I feel like I really need to play that back a few times and, and <laughs> listen to it. I think it's a, it's, it's definitely an interesting perspective that you don't hear a lot. And I, I, I think it's fascinating given all that you've gone through, that that is what you are, are coming away with. I have a few questions that I want to make sure we get to. And the first is actually sure. from one of our, our listeners, Mika. She says, I watched your speech at Cornell's convocation and in it, you talk about the importance of saying, I don't know. How would you recommend someone who's early in their career to become comfortable with expressing that at work? That's a great question. You know, and my most practical advice is to laugh, honestly, because I think so often when we finally can say, I don't know, it's filled with such shame and embarrassment for like not being cooler or not be, being more in the know. But when you let go of that shame and be and say like, oh, you know what? You're talking about this conflict in Afghanistan. I like to be honest with you. I kind of don't know anything about that. I don't follow politics, but will you tell me about it? I'd like to know. Instead of being like, oh, I don't know. This is embarrassing. To try to take the shame out of it and use it as sort of like, adjoining a, a community mechanism where you can laugh at yourself and be like, you know what? A lot of people pretend they know this stuff. I'm going to be the one to be like, I don't know. Sorry. I think that's a helpful tool. Laughter is always a tool, but it's hard to pretend shame away. And so I think just keep reminding yourself that it's not shameful to not know something and say that you don't know it. It's actually brave and it's the way you improve. And also when somebody does it to you and says, oh, I don't know this thing. If you can extend that to somebody else, I think that helps you recognize that, oh, I'm not going to judge this intern for not knowing this or get frustrated with them and be like, oh, yeah, thanks. I'm really glad you asked that. My last question, I'm literally just sitting here with like my head is spinning and my jaw is on the floor because I think that you <laughs> really I, well, you've shared you've shared so much. You've shared such like a, a brave and, and unique way to think about just some really complicated topics. And I've been very open. And so I'm very grateful for that. And I think my question is, what, what is one thing, the takeaway that you want people to have, whether they're interacting from your book, whether they're listening to this podcast or listening to, to other interviews that you're doing, what is the takeaway? How should we think about you and your story? Well, in the introduction of the book, I talk about the idea of making a scene and how uh, as as lovely as my upbringing was in Richmond, Virginia, it wasn't considered ladylike to make a scene. And generally, it's not considered professional or ladylike to make a scene. And it's easy to judge people who are making a scene. And I did that for a character I was playing in a play when I was younger. And what I would encourage people to do is what I learned through playing that character is rather than seeing an event and thinking of it as, oh, that's a girl making a scene. Instead, to think of the scenes that made the girl. And I think when you do that, it grows your empathy in a way. And I think that's sort of what I would like people to take from my book. When someone makes a scene, think about the scenes that made them, not immediately judging them for making a scene. Last question, who should we have next on the show? I mean, only because I love her so much and I think she's awesome and brave and she's a good friend of mine is Aquafina. 
Constance, thank you so much. It, it was amazing talking to you today and listening to your story. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less.